This episode contains graphic descriptions of medical afflictions that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. On June 15, 2015, a crowd gathered outside a small suburban home in Springfield, Missouri. They snapped pictures while a coroner wheeled out the body of 48-year-old Claudine Dee Dee Blanchard. She'd been stabbed to death in her bedroom. And Dee Dee's daughter, Gypsy, was missing. Gypsy definitely wasn't a suspect. Everyone in town knew that the 19-year-old was troubled by countless medical ailments. Epilepsy, cancer, she couldn't even move without a wheelchair but her wheelchair and medications were still in the house. The police believed that she may have been kidnapped, but had no leads or presumed motive. The case became more baffling when detectives traced Gypsy to Big Bend, Wisconsin. In the wake of her mother's killing, she'd run off to be with her 26-year-old boyfriend, Nicholas Godijohn. And inside his home, police found a package with thousands of dollars in cash and a bloody knife. The strangest part was, the frail gypsy seemed to be perfectly healthy. During his interrogation, Nicholas quickly confessed to the murder. But he said he hadn't killed Dee Dee for the money. He was in love, and he seemed to have no regrets. Dee Dee deserved to die. And Gypsy had helped him do it. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. This week, in part two, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. This is our second episode on disease forgery, the act of falsely reporting or creating symptoms of an illness. Last week, we followed Elsa, who chronically self-injured herself due to a factitious disorder called Munchausen syndrome. This week, we'll examine two additional factitious disorders, Munchausen by proxy and Munchausen by internet, Disorders that impact those connected to the patient, and disorders that led Gypsy Blanchard to kill her mother. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. 
there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The murder of D.D. Blanchard baffles to this day. To understand how someone confined to a wheelchair could kill another person, we have to start at the beginning. According to several of her medical records, Gypsy Rose was born in Golden Meadow, Louisiana, sometime between July of 1991 and July of 2000. Gypsy's father, Rod, left Didi shortly before Gypsy was born, but he continued to be a part of his daughter's life, and Gypsy needed all the support she could get. When she was three months old, she began having medical troubles. Didi noticed that Gypsy would periodically gasp for breath and snore while she slept. This is called sleep apnea, a condition that sometimes affects infants because of a blockage in the upper airway, often caused by enlarged tonsils. Sleep apnea occurs in less than 4% of newborns, but is more common in premature or overweight babies. It usually resolves as the child matures, but occasionally sleep apnea needs to be treated with supplemental oxygen or even surgery. If left unchecked, it can lead to asphyxiation and even sudden cardiac death. Only Gypsy's doctors couldn't find any evidence that she had sleep apnea. They didn't think treatment was necessary, but Dee Dee felt otherwise. So she took matters into her own hands. She bought a machine to help Gypsy breathe at night and made her wear a heart monitor for extra precaution. And Dee Dee was quick to let her family members know that she'd saved her daughter's life with her foresight. Dee Dee proved her devotion again six years later when she told Rod that Gypsy had developed epilepsy, a disease marked by unpredictable seizures. It was a bit strange that no one except Dee Dee had ever witnessed Gypsy's seizures. But then again, no one spent as much time with Gypsy as Dee Dee did. Whenever she went to the hospital, doctors claimed that Gypsy appeared healthy. The problem was, seizures sometimes leave no trace. The most common method for detecting them is an EEG, which should be performed within the first 24 to 48 hours after a seizure. But even then, signs of the seizure only appear about 70% of the time. There was no evidence that Gypsy had had a seizure. But apparently, Dee Dee's word was enough to convince her doctors. A physician prescribed Tegretol, an anticonvulsant that treats seizures and nerve pain. But Tegretol's prolonged side effects include overgrowth of the gums, which can exacerbate other oral hygiene issues. And over time, 
Many of Gypsy's teeth deteriorated and had to be removed. Sadly, Gypsy's medical problems only escalated from there. When Gypsy was around eight years old, she fell off her grandfather's motorcycle. Later, Dee Dee claimed that Gypsy was having difficulty walking and sent her for a muscle biopsy. Dee Dee subsequently wasted no time in telling everyone that her daughter had Duchenne muscular dystrophy. According to the Mayo Clinic, Duchenne is a rare genetic disease that causes muscle tissues to degenerate. Healthy muscles use a protein called dystrophin to stabilize the fatty membranes and keep the cells intact. Children with Duchenne can't produce enough dystrophin, and over time, their muscles break down and die. Symptoms like muscle weakness typically first appear when patients are two or three years old. They're usually wheelchair-bound by age 12. Since the heart muscles can also be affected, many patients don't live past their early 20s. So if Gypsy's diagnosis was correct, it was a death sentence. Gypsy didn't have any difficulty walking yet, but her mother ordered her to use a wheelchair to get around. Perhaps Dee Dee was overly cautious, but Gypsy's father, Rod, thought she seemed surprisingly calm about the whole situation, even as Gypsy got sicker. Later that year, Dee Dee claimed her daughter had developed a reflux disorder that prevented her from eating solid food. She pointed to Gypsy's below-average weight as proof. She lobbied doctors to place a tube into Gypsy's stomach so she could be fed with a syringe. Her physicians didn't think that was necessary, but Dee Dee kept booking appointments and begging for the treatment. Her daughter's life was at stake. Eventually, one of her doctors relented. By then, Gypsy was on dozens of medications. One of them made her drool excessively, but Dee Dee didn't believe the drool was a side effect. She insisted it was a symptom of another serious medical condition. She even convinced a surgeon to remove Gypsy's salivary glands. Dee Dee took Gypsy to countless general practitioners and specialists. She always informed them of her daughter's myriad symptoms and diagnoses, and most took her at her word. They didn't compare notes with one another. Why would a mother lie? It's still possible that some doctors became suspicious. It seemed pretty unlikely that Gypsy would develop so many unrelated chronic health conditions all at once. But they didn't speak up. Nobody wanted to offend Dee Dee if they were wrong. She already had enough problems. As for Dee Dee's family, they believed she was the mother of the year. It had to be stressful to care for a chronically ill child. Dee Dee's unflinching support and advocacy for Gypsy was admirable. Nevertheless, she might have sensed that as she nursed Gypsy, some people had begun to nurse doubts. In March 2008, Dee Dee moved a teenage Gypsy to a new home in Springfield, Missouri. Here she could start fresh with a whole new set of doctors. They didn't ask uncomfortable questions. If anyone noticed that parts of Dee Dee's story didn't add up, they only had to look at Gypsy's many surgical scars for evidence of her ongoing medical issues. And her severe symptoms were apparent. Nobody paused to wonder if Gypsy was overmedicated rather than undiagnosed. 
Even Gypsy didn't speak up. Before every hospital visit, Dee Dee gave Gypsy a few simple instructions. Say as little as possible and don't move. Gypsy believed the rules were for her own benefit. She was willing to do whatever her mom said if that meant she'd get better. But her endless doctor's appointments didn't tell Gypsy anything new. To protect her feelings, physicians didn't speak to Gypsy directly. Her mother would leave the hospital room to talk to them. On one occasion, Dee Dee even covered Gypsy's ears with her hands during a difficult conversation. Gypsy estimated that Dee Dee forced her to see over 100 different doctors. Some of her illnesses were diagnosed and treated, but new ones like leukemia, a cancer affecting the body's white blood cells, and spinal cysts, a sack of fluid, pus, or gas, kept popping up. Whenever a doctor became suspicious, refusing to perform a surgery or write a prescription, Dee Dee would seek a second, third, or fourth opinion. Eventually, someone would grant the treatment she desired. Of those hundred doctors, only one formally investigated Gypsy's story. In August 2007, Dee Dee brought 12-year-old Gypsy to a pediatric neurologist named Dr. Bernardo Flasterstein. When Dee Dee said Gypsy had Duchenne muscular dystrophy, he paused. Gypsy didn't look like she had Duchenne. At her age, the muscles in her legs should have been like twigs. Instead, they were firm and her reflexes were normal. Other parts of Gypsy's story didn't add up. Her symptoms had allegedly appeared after her fall from the motorcycle, but Duchenne is unlikely to happen as a result of an injury or accident. In fact, Dr. Flasterstein reviewed Gypsy's records and realized she'd never actually been diagnosed. Gypsy had been tested for the disease and the results had come back negative. Dee Dee's story was a lie. Dr. Flasterstein didn't want to jump to conclusions, so he conducted his own exams. He ran a series of tests, including an MRI, and confirmed his suspicion. Gypsy didn't have the disease. When Dr. Flasterstein told Dee Dee that Gypsy's MRI was clear, he expected she'd be ecstatic. Gypsy wasn't dying of an incurable condition. Instead, Dee Dee became irate. She left the office in a hurry, cursing his incompetence and yelling that she'd never come back. Dee Dee's reaction was startling. She'd spent every minute of Gypsy's life caring for her ill daughter. But in truth, Gypsy wasn't sick. Dee Dee was. And Dee Dee had no idea that she was the one who really needed help, or if help was even possible. Coming up... Gypsy discovers the depths of her mother's deceptions. Now, back to the story. In 2007, Dee Dee Blanchard appeared to be the world's most devoted mother. She dedicated her life to her 12-year-old daughter. Gypsy Rose was plagued by one unlikely disease after another, from epilepsy to muscular dystrophy to cancer. But Gypsy had no idea It was all a lie. Her neurologist, Dr. Flasterstein, 
suspected that Gypsy was a victim of Munchausen by proxy, or MSBP. Today, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders calls the condition factitious disorder imposed on another, or FDIA. It has also been called factitious disorder by proxy. The difference between factitious disorder imposed on self and factitious disorder by proxy is that the patient creates physical symptoms in someone else, and the victim is almost always a child. Today, we know that the overwhelming majority of FDIA perpetrators are mothers. Many have worked in the medical field, so they know how to create convincing symptoms. Dee Dee fit this profile well. In her youth, she'd briefly worked as a nurse's aide at a hospital. She found that her medical knowledge made it easier to fool Gypsy's doctors. And once she started faking Gypsy's illnesses, Dee Dee couldn't stop. If Dee Dee realized that she had a problem, she showed zero signs of it. But maybe we can gain insight into her condition by turning back the clock. Dee Dee wasn't only an FDIA perpetrator, she was also a victim. In her childhood, her mother, Emma, pretended Dee Dee was sick and isolated her from other children. She wasn't allowed to play with friends because Emma claimed she had a deadly heart murmur. Dee Dee grew up feeling like her faux illnesses were the only thing that made her special. And when her mother passed away, all of the attention she'd enjoyed disappeared. According to her siblings, after this loss, Dee Dee went off the deep end. But when Dee Dee gave birth to Gypsy, she finally found a way to get that sympathy back. She developed a new identity as the valiant mother who would do anything for her child. Each time Dee Dee conjured a diagnosis, she got to be a hero. The feeling was intoxicating, a drug she couldn't live without. Poor, sick Gypsy was in the local news several times. All the media attention and support reinforced Dee Dee's fantasy, and the coverage had more concrete benefits too. Habitat for Humanity built them a house where they lived rent-free. It had a jacuzzi, wide doors for Gypsy's wheelchair, and light switches low enough for her to reach. Dee Dee and Gypsy received gifts from people all over the country. Free flights, a trip to Disney World, a new car. To Gypsy, it was proof that her overprotective mother really was a saint. But all these perks came at a price, one that Gypsy paid. It's unclear whether or not Dee Dee knew she was the one who was actually sick. But one thing was clear. She never sought help. And she couldn't hide the truth from Gypsy forever. As Gypsy neared adulthood, she began to nurse doubts about her mother's intentions. She questioned why she needed a wheelchair when she knew she could walk, or why she used a feeding tube when she could easily eat the candy she snuck behind Dee Dee's back. In 2011, Gypsy found even more alarming evidence of her mother's lies. She discovered a Medicaid card with her name on it in an old shoebox. But her birthday was wrong. Dee Dee had told Gypsy she was 15 years old. 
but the card listed her birthday as July 27, 1991, four years earlier than what she believed. Gypsy didn't know what to make of the revelation, but she felt betrayed. She ran away from home. It didn't take long for Didi to find her. It's unclear how long Gypsy was gone, but when she returned home, Didi smashed Gypsy's computer with a hammer. She warned her daughter that the next time, it would be her fingers. Then she chained Gypsy to the bed for two weeks, only allowing her up to use the bathroom. The punishment and threats were cruel, but Didi may have felt like she had no other option. For people with FDIA, the sick child can serve as a lifeline. Their victims are their only means of getting the love and attention they crave, and Didi couldn't loosen her grip. As for Gypsy, she'd only begun to piece the truth together. While she knew she didn't need her wheelchair or feeding tube, she still believed that she had epilepsy, leukemia, and countless other diseases. But one thing was clear. Gypsy couldn't trust Dee Dee. She didn't know why, but her mother wanted her to stay sick. She needed someone to talk to, to help her work out what was going on. But her chronic illnesses had made it hard for her to make friends. Finally, in 2012, Gypsy met Nicholas Godijan on a Christian dating site. She confessed her situation to Nick and told him that they could never be together while her mother was still alive. So on Wednesday, June 10, 2015, 23-year-old Gypsy left the front door to her house open. She placed a pair of gloves and a hunting knife on the ground and hid in the bathroom. At 1.15 a.m., Nick tiptoed inside. He crept into Dee Dee's bedroom and fatally stabbed her 17 times. Gypsy had finally freed herself from Dee Dee, but that freedom was short-lived. After his arrest, Nick immediately confessed to the crime. Prosecutors charged him and Gypsy with Dee Dee's murder. At her trial, Gypsy finally learned the full extent of her mother's lies. Her defense attorney dug through mountains of medical records from dozens of physicians. Gypsy finally realized that all of her diagnoses were a lie. In light of the abuse Gypsy had suffered, the state of Missouri charged her with second-degree murder. She was given a 10-year prison sentence. Her boyfriend, Nick, was sentenced to life in prison. In 2024, Gypsy will be just shy of 33 and eligible for parole. Throughout her sentence in Chillicothe Prison in Livingston County, Missouri, her health has improved dramatically. But she still bears the scars of her abuse. Some of the drugs and surgeries caused her permanent damage. She's missing her salivary glands, and her teeth will never come back. Nevertheless, Gypsy may have saved her own life. A study by the Division of Child Psychology out of Stanford suggests that 10 to 30% of Munchausen by proxy cases are fatal. And although it's notoriously difficult to diagnose, some estimates suggest that there are 600 new cases in the United States every year. Although it's frequently defined as child abuse, Munchausen by proxy isn't limited to parents. 
People with factitious disorder can target lovers, elderly parents, and even pets. And most people with the condition don't know how to treat it. In fact, they rarely even admit it exists. Oftentimes, a person has no idea they have FDBP until it's too late, and their victim is gone. Munchausen by proxy may be one of the most dangerous factitious disorders. But over the past couple of decades, a new and startlingly common kind of factitious disorder has emerged. Munchausen by Internet. A striking example comes to us through the story of a woman we'll refer to as Kristen. When she was 36, her doctor told her that she had breast cancer. It was extremely malignant, and it had already spread throughout her body. She had to endure multiple surgeries and many grueling rounds of chemotherapy. Kristen lived far away from her family and friends, so she turned to the Internet for support. She joined online cancer groups and created a blog to share the intimate details of her illness. She discussed the way chemo took its toll on her body. She was tired all the time. She couldn't sleep and was in constant pain. But Kristen did the best she could to stay positive and keep a sense of humor. And she found purpose in helping others who were going through the same thing. In July 2011, less than a year after her diagnosis, a 19-year-old member of Kristen's online community reached out via email. We'll call her Megan. She said she'd contracted HIV as a child and some years later was diagnosed with cancer. In addition, Megan hinted that her mother was abusive. She didn't just say these things were true. She forwarded photos of herself hooked up to oxygen tanks or receiving treatment. Almost like she felt like she had to prove her diagnoses were real. Kristen and Megan had a mutual friend from the online community who'd met up with Megan before. Between the friend's testimony and all the photos, Kristen had no reason not to believe her, so she offered her new friend comfort and support. However, Megan was extraordinarily needy. They talked every day. Several times, she declared that she was near death, only to miraculously recover. Kristen found herself putting her own needs on hold to support and reassure Megan. Hours after her mastectomy, Kristen even took a Skype call with Megan. Caring for Megan was exhausting, but Kristen didn't dream of asking her to stop calling. She knew how difficult it was to go through treatment alone. Then, on October 22, 2011, Kristen got one of the strangest calls yet. It was Megan's mother claiming her daughter was in the hospital. Kristen feared that her friend might be reaching the end, but something was off. The mother's voice sounded identical to Megan's. She remembered Megan's earlier hints that she was abused and wondered if something more was going on. So she called the police and asked them to do a welfare check. When an officer called her back, he revealed all of Megan's illnesses were lies. Megan was soon diagnosed with factitious disorder. Like Dee Dee, she thrived on the attention and sympathy of people who thought she was sick. Only she wasn't actually injuring herself to get what she needed. Simply faking it on the internet was enough. 
Megan had lied to some of her real-life friends, including the mutual connection she'd shared with Kristen. But she found it easier to pretend to be sick on the web. When Kristen finally unmasked her, Megan felt humiliated and alone. The online community turned on her. It was like her worst nightmare come true, a rock-bottom moment. In the midst of her pain and embarrassment, Megan recognized that she needed to get help. But she didn't know where to turn for treatment. And a cure seemed entirely out of reach. Coming up, we'll explore whether people like Megan and Dee Dee can ever overcome their Munchausens. And now, back to the story. In 2011, 19-year-old Megan convinced an online community of cancer survivors that she was one of them. When she was finally unmasked, she recognized she had factitious disorder. But Megan's method of deception was a relatively new form of the condition. FD expert Dr. Mark Feldman named it Munchausen by Internet. Although it's not officially listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, Munchausen by Internet happens when someone takes their factitious disorder online. The web makes it easy for someone to remain anonymous. They can deceive a large number of people at once, and the proliferation of social media and online support groups provide easy access to sympathetic ears. In fact, Munchausen by Internet may be the most common factitious disorder. And since other online users can't review another person's medical records, it's rare for a patient to get caught like Megan did. After she was diagnosed with FD, Megan wrote an apology to everyone she deceived. She explained, I was attention hungry and I hated myself. I lied almost compulsively and am addicted to being loved, admired, and doted on. I have a history of self-harm and alcohol abuse. Those added together resulted in a bottomless pit who needed constant attention and validation. By accepting that she had a problem, Megan was one step closer to recovery. The challenge is that many patients, like Dee Dee, build their entire identity around their lies. And having that story questioned often feels like a personal attack. This defense mechanism often keeps a patient with factitious disorder from seeking help. As we discussed last episode, FD functions like an addiction. And denial is a common feature in substance abuse. A paper in the Journal of Neuropsychiatry and Clinical Neurosciences even noted that alcoholics may be cognitively incapable of accurately measuring how often or how much they drink. The paper's authors theorized that such addicts may have cognitive dysfunctions. These can make it difficult or even impossible to recognize the severity of their dependency. If there is any hope for a cure, the first step is to overcome denial which is why many addiction treatments begin with an intervention. Interventions are structured processes where friends and relatives share the negative impact a person's addiction has on their lives. The goal is to persuade the person to recognize their disease and seek help. But oftentimes, patients who acknowledge their factitious disorder have a difficult time finding that help. 
Manipulating doctors is part of the condition, and many psychologists are hesitant to accept a patient who regularly lies to them. But one doctor found a way to treat the disorder. Andrea Abigail, whom we mentioned last week, was abused as a child and displayed signs of Munchausen syndrome in her 30s. In April 2002, Andrea sought help from therapist Dr. Thomas Hall. Like many patients with Munchausen, Andrea was in denial. She knew she had a problem, but she wouldn't admit that her self-inflicted illnesses were the real issue. So at first, she told Dr. Hall that she needed help getting over an eating disorder. Dr. Hall encouraged Andrea to stop using laxatives and form a healthy relationship with food. But his coaching didn't help her because he was treating the wrong condition. Soon, Andrea began to complain of unrelated head injuries, and Dr. Hall became suspicious. Then, Andrea's behavior became erratic and unstable during their sessions. Once, she brought a razor blade and threatened to cut herself in front of him. Dr. Hall considered dropping Andrea as a patient. He, like many therapists, didn't feel he had the tools to treat whatever Andrea was going through. Then, in December 2004, Andrea's behavior escalated into threats of suicide. Scared for her safety, Dr. Hall called 911. At first, Andrea saw this as a betrayal. He'd broken her trust and had her hospitalized against her will. But deep down, Andrea understood Dr. Hall had acted to protect her. He may have been the only person who could help her get better. Two weeks after her suicide attempt, Andrea told Dr. Hall everything. He diagnosed her with Munchausen and theorized that Andrea's mental health condition came from deep-seated feelings of worthlessness. Andrea needed to realize that loving herself and being loved by others was something she deserved, not something she had to earn through pain and suffering. Dr. Hall treated Andrea's disorder the same way he treated a substance addiction. He encouraged Andrea to tell her husband, Mark, about her condition. Dr. Hall drafted a contract similar to those used in addiction recovery programs, which Andrea signed, a promise to herself and her loved ones that she wouldn't hurt herself anymore. But it wasn't that simple. Andrea broke the contract within weeks. Munchausen patients are prone to relapses and setbacks. Progress is slow. There are no easy solutions or cures. Dr. Hall continually worked with Andrea to address her core issues. That meant identifying the roots of her feelings of worthlessness. Factitious disorders often stem from childhood trauma. Neglect and abuse can halt a person's emotional development and warp a person's sense of self. To help Andrea overcome these challenges, Dr. Hall used methods like dynamic systems theory. This involves viewing oneself as part of a larger whole to recognize your innate value and how this can change over time. For example, Andrea's sense of self-worth was tied to illness. She only felt loved when she was sick and people cared for her. Through therapy, she learned to see herself as a mother, wife, and student. She recognized that she deserved love for who she was and what she did, 
not because of her medical ailments. Her treatment took several years. She suffered numerous relapses. Often it felt like one step forward, two steps back. But Andrea's fear of losing her family motivated her to keep fighting. Over time, Andrea's trips to the hospital became less frequent. And finally, they stopped altogether. She went back to school and completed a graduate degree in social work. It took years, but she was finally free of her compulsion. Dr. Hall found a way to treat factitious disorder, but his method isn't the only option. In his book, Plain Sick, Dr. Feldman, who first identified Munchausen syndrome, described several approaches to treating factitious disorders. A common tactic replaces the harmful behavior with something that will bring a sense of accomplishment and hopefully praise from others. For example, if a person feels a compulsion to make themselves sick, they can go on a jog or visit the gym instead. They might even post about the workout on social media and get love and attention for the positive behavior. Eventually, they'll learn to associate praise and affection with self-care rather than self-harm. Megan, the Munchausen by Internet patient, seems to have had success through this approach. She stopped posting about being sick and claimed that therapy and motherhood gave her a new sense of self-worth. It's important to remind people with factitious disorders that they're not a lost cause. They can change and can ask for support from their loved ones, even the people they've hurt. This philosophy is easier in Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen by internet cases, but it's a bit harder for people who endanger others, like Dee Dee Blanchard. In fact, there's considerable debate over whether Munchausen by proxy is an illness at all. Dr. Feldman believes that it belongs firmly in the legal category of medical child abuse. Many argue that when a parent harms their child, the solution isn't therapy, but prison time. If a doctor suspects Munchausen by proxy, it must be reported to child services. The parent's path to treatment and recovery takes a back seat to a criminal investigation. Evidence needs to be gathered, witnesses need to be interviewed, and a forensic psychiatrist needs to be brought in. If the evaluating team determines that the parent is dangerous, they will bring the case to court. Then, it's up to a judge to decide if the child should be taken away. The perpetrator may be prosecuted. If convicted, they might then seek psychiatric treatment from prison. Unfortunately, court-ordered therapy for FDIA isn't very effective. This could be because the patient hasn't overcome their denial yet. FDIA parents may try to manipulate their counselors to get their child back rather than seriously commit to recovery. The biggest problem with Munchausen syndrome is that it's still so wildly misunderstood. Patients living with a factitious disorder can undermine someone's trust, empathy, and compassion, all without understanding why they behave as they do. But their problems and struggles are still real. They, like any patient, deserve the opportunity to seek help. Factitious disorders stem from the desire to be needed, wanted, and accepted. It's an addiction to affection. And love is the most potent drug 
of all. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. For more information on disease forgery, amongst the many sources we used, we found two sources to be extremely helpful to our research. First, the documentary Gypsy's Revenge, directed by Jesse Vile. Second, an article from The Stranger titled The Lying Disease by Sienna Madrid. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>